Welcome to the Indie Jigsaw. This is where we take all the little pieces of why Scotland needs to be independent, what kind of country we want to be, how we're going to get there, and try and put them together to see what that picture looks like. It's the Indie Jigsaw. This month has, of course, been dominated by the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow. On the 25th of October, Nicola Sturgeon made a speech at the University of Strathclyde on Scotland's ambitions for COP26. There doesn't appear to have been any mainstream media coverage of this, although the proceedings were live-streamed. So this is part of the First Minister's speech where she talks about Scotland's climate change targets. So my pledge today is that the Scottish Government will do everything and anything we can to ensure that COP26 is a success. We won't be at the negotiating table directly. We're not an independent state, not yet. But as host country, we do have a big role to play. And we also carry a big and very serious responsibility. I made clear to both the UN and the UK government that we stand ready and willing to do anything and everything we can to support the negotiations. The UK's presidency of COP26 is a massive opportunity, but also a serious responsibility. I know that the Prime Minister and the UK government are determined to step up in the days ahead and show real commitment and leadership. And the Scottish Government will do everything we can to help. After all, this summit will shape the future of the world we live in. So absolutely nothing, certainly not party politics, should stand in the way of us working together towards a successful outcome. One of Scotland's objectives during the summit itself is to be a bridge builder, to connect those whose voices are too rarely heard with those making the decisions. I quoted Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, earlier. In the same speech that I quoted, he talked about the need to bridge the climate divide. And so part of our role at this COP will be to provide the spaces and forums and support the initiatives that will allow these bridges to be built. Firstly, between the developed and developing worlds. We have supported the Glasgow Climate Dialogues, which facilitate discussion between the global south and the developed world, and also the Global Citizens' Assembly to give people from around the world the opportunity to be heard on climate action. Second, between young people and the leaders whose decisions will shape your future. The Scottish Government has funded the Conference of Youth, which starts on Thursday. That will be the first major in-person event of COP26. More than 400 young people from more than 120 countries will gather to draw up their demands of world leaders. I will speak at the opening event, but more importantly, I will listen. I've also made a commitment to meet regularly throughout COP with v Vanessa Nakati from Uganda. Vanessa is the founder of Youth for the Future Africa and the Africa-based Rise Up movement. Hearing her perspective at key stages over the two weeks will, I think, be an important reality check. And thirdly, we will be seeking to build a bridge between the UN member states in the negotiating room and the governments of cities, regions and devolved nations like ours. Scotland is currently the European co-chair of what's called the Under Two Coalition. That is a powerful alliance of city, regional and devolved governments from around the world. Collectively, 
we represent almost 2 billion people and around half of the reduction in emissions necessary to meet the challenge of 1.5 degrees will depend on decisions taken by governments like ours. So we carry a great deal of responsibility, but also a great deal of influence. We intend to use that to the full during COP. Today, a new Just Transition Alliance is being established within the coalition to ensure that all member governments can access the resources, support and information necessary to deliver just transitions. And last week, the coalition agreed a new memorandum of understanding. It commits us collectively to reach net zero by 2050 at the latest and to do so individually as fast as possible. Scotland, of course, is legally committed to doing so by 2045. Along with my fellow co-chairs from California, Korea, Mexico and South Africa, I'll be working during and after COP to increase support for those commitments. The focus at COP will inevitably be on the negotiations between the big countries, but governments at all levels have a responsibility and Scotland is determined to play our full part. Of course, our ability to do that depends on our own climate credibility. Scotland cannot urge other countries to set and meet ambitious targets if we fail to do that ourselves. We must lead not by the strength of our rhetoric, but by the power of our example. And so that's the final issue I want to focus on today. In most comparisons of international climate targets, Scotland does rank very well indeed. Uh, the UK Committee on Climate Change confirmed just last year that we have decarbonised more quickly than any G20 nation. We've already halved our emissions since 1990. We're committed to a 75% reduction by 2030, which means halving them again over the course of this decade. And, of course, we aim to reach net zero and therefore completely end Scotland's contribution to climate change by 2045 at the latest. Our targets are not just amongst the most ambitious anywhere in the world, they are also amongst the toughest. For instance, we're one of very few countries to have legally binding annual targets for every year of our journey to net zero. We're also one of only a few to include shipping and aviation in the calculation of our emissions. And we have pledged to meet our targets through domestic effort, not by reliance on international credit trading. So we here have much to be proud of, but still we need to do much better. It's not enough to set tough targets. We must meet those targets. And despite all of our progress, we have fallen short on our last three annual milestones. Two years ago, our emissions were 51.5% lower than in 1990. But to meet that year's annual target, they needed to be 55% lower. The law in Scotland stipulates that if we miss any annual targets, we must outperform in future years to make up for it. So this week we will publish a catch-up plan. It will highlight some of the actions already announced this year and also set out a range of additional measures, for example, to decarbonise public sector buildings, promote home upgrades and make bus travel cleaner and more accessible. Many of these measures were committed to in the cooperation agreement uh, between the Scottish Government and the Scottish Green Party, an agreement which explicitly and rightly places climate policy at the heart of everything we do. And over 
The next three weeks, we will highlight other aspects of the work the Scottish Government is doing to put the climate front and centre. That will include planning policy, agriculture, nature restoration, wave and tidal power and green hydrogen. In all of these, we are stepping up our ambition and our action. For example, there is a licensing round underway right now for up to 10 gigawatts of offshore wind power. And later this week, we will set out plans to further increase our onshore wind capacity. Meanwhile, back in Holyrood, this next clip is the first two speeches in a debate on Scottish land reform. The debate was brought by Rhoda Grant, the Labour MSP for Highlands and Islands. And Rhoda paints a compelling picture of the dangers of the no-questions-asked approach to selling off Scotland's land. This also includes the response from Emma Roddick, the SNP MP for the same region, who makes the point that what we need in the countryside is more than just planting trees and more than just rewilding. It needs to be repeopled as well. It was a very interesting debate and I'm really interested to see how this one turns out. The Highlands and Islands are at the forefront in the feeling the effects of the new forces at work in our land markets. These forces are likely to further embed the stark social injustice in our land ownership patterns, very few people owning most of our land. That pattern of land ownership concentrates wealth, power and influence into very few hands. It delivers for the few, not the many. Scotland is also highly unusual in having almost no land market regulation. That makes Scotland the prime destination for capital, looking for an easy, safe and rewarding purchase. A recent report by one of the leading land agents, Savills, made clear they continued to receive calls from buyers around the world. They refer to our concentrated ownership patterns as one of the few remaining places in the world where green resources can be acquired on a meaningful scale. Come to Scotland and buy what you like, no questions asked. Purchase land in Scotland only depends on the size of your wallet, no questions asked. The scale of many of our land holdings brings with it, in effect, a local monopoly on land with no questions asked. That's how Anders Poulsen has probably become one of Scotland's largest private landowners, no questions asked. There's nothing new about unregulated land market. What is new is the latest way that it is being exploited here in Scotland. A new type of buyer is emerging, responding to our real concern about climate, the climate emergency. There is evidence that those who market land see the climate emergency as a valuable selling point. We're seeing the commodification and the financialization of the climate emergency, stimulating private land grabbing. Brewdogs seeking to offset carbon emissions, promote its green credentials and win new investors by purchasing thousands of acres of land in the Highlands. Standard Life Investment Property Income Trust just bought thousands of acres in the Cairngorm National Park and Gresham House is promoting a £300 million private investment with Scottish forestry firmly in its sight. What unites this group of buyers is the climate emergency. This provides a chance to build corporate rec reputation, enhance market share, grow corporate wealth on the back of the climate concerns we all have. It also allows some to continue as carbon emitters while offsetting these emissions through their Scottish land holdings. 
Some purchases are likely to hedge against future carbon um, tax liabilities too. It's a low-risk investment with very high returns. With the land comes access to Scottish Government subsidies. Land grabbing, exploiting an unregulated land market, underpinned by taxpayer subsidies. Standard Life made it clear that the cost of tree planting on the land, the land that they were happy to pay £7.5 million for, would be met through grant funding. The benefits go to those with capital to invest. Enriching the already rich for climate action cannot possibly deliver a just transition through, through the climate emergency. Many of these purchases take place off-market in secret private sales. This device acts against communities who are seeking a late registration of interest in land to give them the opportunity to purchase it. But such is the scale of land price inflation in practice that this hard-won right to register an interest in land may be of little value to them. Even with the doubling of the Scottish Land Fund, it will be hard for communities to secure land, even if they have the opportunity. We know that community ownership of land delivers multiple pu public benefits. Community owners are not absentee owners. There are people, local people, living in that area. All revenues are kept locally and reinvested, building community wealth. Local affordable housing gets built, population is retained and places repopulated. Jobs get created, trees get planted and peatlands get restored. So while the new owners, the green lairds, may be playing to our climate concerns, what regard do they have to these other public interest issues? We have no guarantees, because when you buy land in Scotland, no questions are asked. Presiding officer, we need to recognise the time is long past for Scotland's land markets to be regulated. Ministers must be empowered to act on land issues in the public interest to move from that exploitable, unregulated land market to one that regulates land as a national asset to deliver on our collective aspirations. My party and the parties of government are committed to a public interest test in questions of land ownership. That would be an important step, but we need to go much further. It appears to me that a presumption against ownership of land over a set scale is now necessary. We impose a residency requirement on our crofters. Why not our landowners? The Land and Buildings Transaction Tax is higher to discourage second home purchases. Why not higher to discourage land grabbing? And presiding officer, we need to protect the public interest and act especially on the off-market land purchases. The Land Commission needs the powers to act on land monopoly issues and better enable public interest purchases. We need to make observing the land rights and responsibility statement statutory and its expectations much firmer. We need to consider capping the total amount of public subsidy any large-scale landowner receives. We need to see the uplift in the value of land effectively underwritten by public subsidy clawed back for public benefit. We should act on Community Land Scotland's suggestion for a community wealth fund, and we need to task Cooperative Development Scotland with promoting cooperative and mutual ownership of land in Scotland. Presiding officer, these suggestions be begin to map up some of the potential ways forward. 
more radical change, it's desperately needed here, would be regarded as normal across the world already. The emergence of the so-called green lairds shines a light on the inadequacy of our land laws, and it also shines a light on how we subsidise the creation of private wealth from owning land when we could be building community wealth instead. If the Minister acts on these issues, she can expect fierce opposition from vested interests. But if she takes the right action, she will get support from these benches. I and my colleagues will bring forward ideas. We will also be a force for more radical action. And that action is essential to create a more just and fairer Scotland. Thank you, Thank you very much indeed, Ms Grant. Um, we now move to the open debate. I call Emma Roddick, who will be followed by Dean Lockhart, for around four minutes. Ms Roddick. Thank you, Presiding Officer. And firstly, I am grateful to my Highlands and Islands colleague, Rhoda Grant, for raising this motion, which I was glad to offer my support to ahead of it being selected for members' business today. I think that in our region in particular, people are very well aware of the imbalance in who owns the land and how it affects the daily lives of those of us who live there. So I am glad to see this issue getting attention early on in this Parliament. I am proud to be standing here today as an MSP elected on the strength of an SNP manifesto, which included a specific commitment to new land reform legislation, now expected to be brought forward by the end of 2023 and a new Community Empowerment Act. One policy I am particularly excited by is the presumption towards community buyouts of land. That will not only help us in increasing the diversity in land ownership, but will ensure that local people are involved in decisions on how their land is used. I am certain that most would not choose to have it used as an indulgent, conscience-easing vanity project for big business, and I can't tell you how many times in the last few years I have let out another sigh at the newest in a line of self-congratulatory press releases from companies who have bought up land in the Highlands and plan on filling it with trees, because they know better than the local community what the right use of the land is, and because they have the money to collect our land for use as an asset to their business to offset the damage that they are doing to the climate elsewhere. The complete lack of self-awareness of many do-gooders when failing to recognise that they are just another wealthy private buyer of our land who is contributing to the continuation of a skewed and unjust land market is astounding. Like many in my region, my ears do prick when I hear the word rewilding, not because I don't recognise the need to tackle climate change, but because it is so often raised as an action to be taken in my region by people with little to no understanding of those who currently live in or work the land. Or indeed those who could be living in or working the land, but are not due to enduring, enduring effects of the clearances two centuries ago. The attitude that the Highlands are a playground for the gentry or ecotourists is also one which persists from those horrific events. Rewilding can and should happen in conjunction with repeopling, but it will not if you dream up your big rewilding ideas based on a romantic or even Cumberland-esque vision of a sparse, deserted Highlands rather than on the voices and experiences of the local community who currently use it, currently live in it. The Highlands are not just sparsely populated, they are still cleared. I'm all for restoration of the natural envi environment as long as lairds and MSPs alike keep in mind that a true restoration of the Highlands includes recognising the need to reintroduce people to our land as well. The fact that it is large landowners who are speaking out against the general principles of a new land reform bill only serves to tell me that it is exactly what we need to be doing. 
So let's do more to discourage this idea that it doesn't matter who owns the land as long as there are trees on it. Let's diversify the type of land ownership in this country. And more importantly, let's empower communities to have a say in what that looks like. And since that debate took place in Holyrood, we have heard of firms such as Real Wild Estates, who are aiming to profit from rewilding land. SNP President Mike Russell has described it as simply a modernised version of landlordism and said that the new wave of green lairds will take money out of the area, ignore the rights of resident communities and perpetuate huge inequalities. I think if we are in any doubt as to the kind of client that real wild estates will attract, apparently Boris Johnson's father, Stanley, is very interested. You're listening to The Indie Jigsaw. As we record this, COP26 is in full swing. And in this clip, CNN's Christiane Amanpour interviews Nicola Sturgeon about oil and Scottish independence. First Minister, welcome back to the programme. Thank you. So here you are. This is Scotland. You're the First Minister. You must be proud to be hosting this, be the host country. Of course, it's a big honour for Scotland to host a summit so important. Glasgow's also my home city, so I feel a bit of personal pride in uh, the, the city that I live in and represent in the Scottish Parliament. But I also feel a big sense of responsibility. I'm yeah. not directly around the negotiating table, but as a leader, I want to play my part in making this summit a success. I think success is in the balance. It's not guaranteed. There is an enormous job of work for world leaders to do here over the next couple of days if we're not to let down the next generation. You know, the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, he has said if Glasgow fails, Mm. the whole thing is is going to fail. In other words, the whole effort to keep, you know, temperatures below 1.5 or at 1.5. Do you feel that kind of edge? I don't think he's wrong, but what I would then say is let's make sure Glasgow doesn't fail. Now, what does success look like? Um, Already, I think we've seen expectations lowered a bit. You know, a few months ago, we might have hoped that Glasgow would deliver the Mm -hmm. hard commitments to actually set the definite pathway to keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees. That's possibly unlikely, but we need to try to close the emissions gap and come out of this summit with a clear process and timescale to completely closing the gap over the next couple of years, because this decade is critical. If we don't see emissions start to reduce dramatically by 2030, then net zero by mid-century and 1.5 degrees starts to look unlikely, and the consequences of that are stark. Also got to see an increase in the delivery of the commitments around climate finance, because the developed world that have done so much to cause climate change and benefited from that owe a big obligation to the developing world to help them make the changes that are now required. So from my conversations and also from what some of the officials are saying, it looks like the finance piece of this might actually be improved, that they, the leaders might come up with some, mm. you know, more financing than they have up until now. But the key mm. is what you just touched on, which is not just promises and words and, you know, papers, but actually delivery on the mm. cutting mm. of emissions. The G20 did not produce yep. that. And President Biden said, I mean, he sort of threw the blame at at countries like China and Russia, which he said didn't even come Mm. to play. It didn't even come with any meaningful commitments at all. When you say um, the tone is sort of being uh, underplayed, so to speak, um, expectations are being lowered. Do you think that's like what politicians do in order to then surprise? Or are you really (laughs) 
Are you really concerned? So. No, I'm really concerned. Yeah. So I, I hope there's a bit of underplaying of expectations now in order to overperform over the course of the summer. I'm not convinced that is what is actually happening. I think there is a genuine gap between the rhetoric and the delivery. On climate finance, I hope that is right. But you know, the UN report published last week showed that the commitment, which was meant to be delivered in 2020, is only on track to be delivered in 2023. Can that be pulled forward? Big question. I hope the answer is yes. But crucially, it's about increasing the scale of near-term ambition to cut emissions. Emissions are still rising globally quite sharply. They've got to reduce by about 45% by 2030 Mm -hmm. to keep that ambition of 1.5 alive. So that's what we've got to focus on. Now, if that gap is not closed completely by the end of this two weeks, what happens after that? That's a big question. Right now, countries are under an obligation to revise their nationally determined contributions every five years. That surely has to become every year or every two years if we're to maintain any sense of momentum in the early part of this decade. And certainly some of these countries, India, China, have not updated their commitments since Paris. Well, China last week published or said what its commitments were. They were no different to what they had said previously. Uh, India's got a big response. Look, the big countries have got a massive responsibility here. Uh, President Biden obviously has you know, his own challenges getting his plans through Congress right now, but at least is setting a, an ambition that is is greater than what his predecessor had, obviously, which is perhaps not saying much. Uh, But countries of all sizes have got an obligation. Scotland's the European co-chair of what's called the Under Two Coalition, which is states and regions, devolved governments like ours. We represent about two billion people. We've all got to play our part and we've got to up that scale of ambition pretty quickly. So let's talk about Scotland mm. then. Um, you have said, um, different than many of the major leaders, that you want to get to net zero by 2045, which is five years earlier than, than the others are saying. Ambitious, but several things. Scotland has missed its targets for the last three yep. sessions, mm-hmm. its annual targets. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. Secondly, you've got this controversial Campbell, mm-hmm. yep. oil and gas, natural drilling at 75 miles off the Shetland uh, Islands. And the UK Scottish minister said the most incredible thing. He basically said, 100% we should open the Cambo mm. oil field. He said, it's foolish to think that we can run away from oil and gas. Surely that's literally running in the face yeah. of what we're trying to combat. So just to be clear, I'll come, I want to come back to Campbell, but I want to answer yeah. your first question about targets yeah. first. But he's not one of my ministers, right. just to be clear. He's a UK government minister, one of Boris Johnson's ministers. But you, you're your government has failed to I, well, meet let, the can, can I table, targets. There's two yes. related but quite yep. distinct questions mm-hmm. there. So on targets, firstly the context here. Scotland's decarbonised faster than any G20 country in recent years. We are halfway to net zero. We've reduced our emissions already by 51.5%. So that's further progress, mm-hmm. faster progress than most other countries across the world. We have very stretching annual targets. And in the last three years, we've marginally missed them. So 51.5% reduction against what should have been 55%. So put that Mm -hmm. in some context. We're also legally obliged because of that to publish catch-up plans and overperform in years to come. So marginally missing really ambitious targets is not ideal. I don't want to miss the targets, but it's better than not being ambitious in the targets you set in Mm -hmm. the first place. And don't lose sight of the context of the fact Scotland has already decarbonised faster than most other countries in the world. On Campbell, you know, the, the most all countries have their really difficult issues. For yeah. a country like Scotland, oil and gas is that difficult issue. Lots of tens of thousands of jobs dependent on yeah. that. We've got to make a 
transition that doesn't leave people on the scrap heap, but we've got to accelerate that transition. We've got to move away from fossil fuels quickly and quicker than we are projected to do so. And Campbell it has a licence, it's had a licence for about 20 years. The question is, should it simply get the green light to start drilling for new oil? My answer is no, it shouldn't simply get that green light. It should only go ahead. It's not my decision, it's Boris Johnson's decision, but it should only go ahead if it can pass the most stringent climate assessment. Now, many people would say it couldn't possibly right. do that, but right now the UK government want to let it go ahead without even doing an assessment like that, and I think that is wrong. You know, you've raised it, and you're right. Every leader has their difficult issue, whether it's Nicola Sturgeon here, whether it's Joe Manchin in, yep. in, in West Virginia, uh, whether it's China or India mm. who say, hey, you rich countries, you've spent decades or hundreds of years industrializing, now it's our turn. So the question is, what do people like yourselves say or do to make the really tough decisions? Because it might, you know, come back to hit you all in the face in elections. Yeah. I don't know. Well, hyperbole is a constant feature of political discourse, but actually right now it's hard to exaggerate the scale of the crisis we're facing. This is literally about the sustainability of the planet right. and not way hundreds of years in the future, but in the relatively near term. If we can't find it within ourselves to make the tough decisions now, then when would we ever do that? And also, yes, these decisions are tough, but in my experience, certainly here in Scotland, the public are already ahead of the politicians and want to see mm -hmm. faster and further So would you action. just say no to Cambo? Even it's though you've not, got 71,500 no, so jobs are dependent on it here. I, I think there's a massive question over whether we should be drilling for new oil. Right. And but at the very least, you have to do the rigorous assessment of that before you give it the go-ahead. We need to accelerate the transition away from oil and gas and do that in a way that gives new jobs for these people to move into. Right. So that means doing all sorts of things in, in tandem, reducing dependence on oil and gas, reducing energy demand first and mm -hmm. foremost, and then building up the renewable and low carbon technologies. Now we've got to accelerate the progress of that. Now, people in the oil and gas industry would say, well, we need oil and gas for you know however many more years to come. At the current rate of progress of the alternatives, that might be true. The challenge for it is can we change the equation there? and do it much faster. We've got to do that. Mm -hmm. And that, for Scotland, is one of the difficult issues. But if leaders just focus on the relatively easy things and shy away from the tough things, we won't get where we need to be. Is the independence referendum definitely going to go ahead in 2023 as you That's my plan. As you That's want. What I, Will you absolutely. go to court to make sure it happens? I, look, if, if we all accept the basic principle of democracy, then talk of court becomes mm. completely academic. I don't want to go to court. This is about democracy. It's about letting people in Scotland choose their own future mm. when the time for that is right. That's what I fought an election on earlier this year and won a historically high share of the vote on the back of. So Boris Johnson opposes independence. That's perfectly legitimate. What's not legitimate is for him to stand in the way of democracy. And speaking of standing in the way of democracy, the Supreme Court handed down its ruling on the matter referred to it by the UK government. The bill, supported unanimously by every party in the Scottish Parliament, to incorporate the rights of children, as set out in the United Nations Charter for Children's Rights, into devolved legislation. Or to put it another way, the UK government has prevented us protecting the rights of Scottish children in Scottish matters as decided by the Scottish Parliament. Now, if that isn't a political attack on the Scottish government, the Scottish Parliament, 
It's hard to see what other interpretation could be placed on this. It also shows up the absolute limitations of devolution. In the debate that followed the ministerial statement, Michelle Thompson, MSP for Falkirk, I think puts it very well. John Swinney responds to her question. Officer, as a much respected Centre for Constitutional Change at the University of Edinburgh has made abundantly clear, the referral of the bills to the Supreme Court by UK law officers was as much a political as a legal decision. They were under no duty to refer. Their decision was political. The effect of this ruling on the UNCRC bill is to deny a range of rights to Scottish children. Although the Scottish Government may now reluctantly seek to amend the legislation to make it compliant, can the Cabinet Secretary confirm that every effort will be made to ensure the children of Scotland do not lose out due to the political actions of the UK Government? Deputy First Minister. So, so let me... Uh, use an example to illustrate the position that Michelle Thompson puts to me to substantiate the, the, the argument that she has made. The Education Scotland Act, the contents of that Act, the 1980 Act, are entirely devolved. This Parliament can amend that uh, Act in its entirety. But if we wish to extend to the citizens of Scotland the, 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 the right to judicially challenge that bill in terms of the UNCRC and the point I was advancing to Mr Mara, that is no longer available to them because the United Kingdom law officers have taken the action they have taken. So it is a, an act and an area of policy entirely within the competence of this Parliament, but we cannot I extend the rights that we want to extend, Parliament wants to extend, to that bill because of the actions of the UK law officer. So I, I'm rather with um, Michelle Thompson on the question that this was not legal, but a political intervention. This next Indie Jigsaw snippet was taken from a meeting held by the Aberdeen Independence Movement with their speaker, Anthony Salomone. And the title of the event was A Global Blueprint for an Independent Scotland. This particular snippet is Anthony talking about the European Union's flexibility around currency and debt levels for countries asking to join the EU. We hear a lot from unionist apologists saying that uh, Scotland's level of debt would be far too high and the EU wouldn't want anything to do with us. Uh, leaving aside for the moment whether that debt actually is what's claimed by those unionists, Anthony is very clear on the flexibility and the long-term perspective that the EU shows when they're negotiating with a country who wants to join them. Another one. Would the EU be flexible regarding currency and would the EU want to set limits on running a deficit? Yes, yeah, so these are, are, are important questions. Again, very salient ones. They seem to come up a lot, I suppose. So on the question of... of of currency, you know, this is all links back to the the key that I was talking about, sort of all the EU's rules and policies and so on. And if you want to be a new member state, you know, you have to you have to satisfy them. You have to meet them all at, at the day you join the EU, and then from then on, obviously, you're part of trying to shape those rules. Uh, but at the initial phase, you know, you need to either implement them or agree something different with the EU. 
Um, I think that the EU would be willing to show some flexibility with Scotland on the currency question, which is to say, for instance, you know, would, would we have to have our own currency sort of, you know, in order to be able to apply to join the EU and so on? I don't necessarily think so. I do think that the EU would find it odd uh, if we, as a country as we are, a country as rich as we would be and are, not to have a currency. I think they might find that strange. Uh, but I imagine they would be willing to work with, you know, whatever. So depend, I guess we don't know what the circumstances would be, you know, on the day in which Scotland applied to join the EU. Would we still be using sterling? Would we have our own currency? We don't know the answer to that. So it's kind of hard to judge how the EU would respond. But generally speaking, I think that the EU would be willing to be flexible as long as we demonstrated that there was a clear plan of what we were doing. So, for instance, if we didn't have our own currency at the time when we applied to join the EU, that, you know, there was a blueprint for, you know, saying whatever, within the next five years or 10 years or whatever that seems reasonable, here is our plan for when we would be moving to our own currency. And I think that in, in, in the longer term, the EU would want to see that. Uh, so, you know, there, there's that. Then obviously there's the issue of the euro. Uh, it, you know, generally speaking, you, do, you don't move straight to the euro. I mean, you, you have your own national currency and then you fill a number of steps and you sort of, if you like, merge your currency into the euro. So you would normally have to have your own currency first. Uh, there is no, you know, requirement that you must join the euro on a particular timetable, uh, but I, I, I hope that our, you know, debate can move beyond that kind of thinking, because, you know, the vast majority of member states are in the euro, and future ones will be as well, uh, and there are disadvantages to being in that small group of countries who are not in the euro in terms, not just in terms of economics, but uh, in terms of your level of, of influence in the EU, because the Eurozone is one of the core aspects of the EU. And for us to, you know, in the fullness of time, to be willing to have that kind of debate with ourselves of not just would we be forced to join the EU, the answer to that is no, as it doesn't make sense for us to be, oh, sorry, in the Euro, does it make sense for us to be in the Euro? And, you know, should we actually think about it? So that's something for the longer term, I suppose, but worth keeping in mind. Now, on the question of, of the deficit, uh, this is the national budget deficit. Yes, there are EU rules uh, on sort of national uh, budget deficits and national debts uh, to try to, you know, ensure the, the uh, financial sustainability of the EU, I suppose, both within individual member states and the EU as a whole. Uh, this does include the famous 3%, so your budget deficit is supposed to be 3%. I am very confident that there will be flexibility on that. Uh, in terms of you know what Scotland was negotiating with the EU during the process to join the EU, which is to say, you know, if a Scottish government were to to go to the EU and say, you know, we've just become independent, uh, we have unique circumstances here in the sense that we're spending a lot to try to build the institutions that I was talking about before, uh, you know, and but again, here is our plan of how we we aim to to you know achieve the sort of deficit targets over a certain period of time and so on. You know, the EU may have particular thoughts on whatever proposals are made, but I'm very confident that, you know, the solutions could be found on those questions. But I suppose it links back to the key point that I would make, which is that for any, any of the issues where Scotland was seeking something different or special, you know, a huge part of it is not just about what you're asking, it's about, you know, how you, you ask it in the sense that, you know, you, you have, you know, a clear plan and case of what you're proposing uh, and, you know, you have uh, evidence and research and so on, you know, slightly contrast how the UK conducted its Brexit process, for instance. Uh, and if you frame it all in those ways, you know, the commission will be able to look at this and say, okay, well, we, you know, here we think about this, you know, this makes sense, here's this plan, you know, and, and, and sort of uh, uh, internalizing, understanding how the EU works. And then when you go to make your requests, you're in that same frame of mind. It makes a massive difference along with what you're asking for, make, but that still makes a massive difference to what the eventual response is from the EU institutions. 
If you'd like to listen to the whole of the meeting of Aberdeen Independence Movement with Anthony Salamone, you'll find it on Scottish Independent Podcasts on SoundCloud. And the name of the track is A Global Blueprint for an Independent Scotland. In this clip, Nicola Sturgeon at the COP26 conference is talking to the Global Assembly Conference. Thank you all very much indeed. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, the first and most important duty I have today is to say welcome to Scotland, uh, welcome to my beautiful home city of Glasgow. I'm proud to call this city home and hopefully for those of you not from Scotland over the next few days you will feel very at home here as well. Uh, one of the things that is well known about Glaswegians, I think, is that we are not backwards in coming forwards. Uh, we like to express ourselves, sometimes very loudly and very bluntly. Uh, we like to say our peace. And that, of course, is the philosophy underpinning the work of this Global Climate Assembly. Uh, so let me say what a huge privilege it is for me to welcome you to COP26 uh, to hear something of your stories and your proposals. Uh, my government in Scotland believes really strongly that putting people at the heart of climate action, as we do through our own regular public engagement and indeed our own climate assembly, and we believe that is important in every country, it is important globally, and we want that approach to prevail as far as possible on the international stage. Now, the question I've been asked to address briefly today is why do we need a global citizens' assembly? And to me, and I think to most people, the answer to that question should be really obvious. The impact of the climate crisis is being felt already by people all over the world. Clearly, it's being felt much more acutely in some parts of the world than in others. But there is no part of the world any longer that cannot say that the impact of the climate crisis is with us in the here and now. And while much of, most of the responsibility for that and for tackling that, putting into reverse the process of climate change, falls on governments and on industry, those who emit the most, often some of the best ideas, some of the best solutions, and some of the most intense pressure comes from citizens and from communities. And it's one of the reasons why during the talks that will take place here in Glasgow over the next two weeks, Scotland will seek to provide a bridge between those whose voices are so rarely, all too rarely heard, and those making the decisions. The Climate Assembly provides a platform for those often unheard voices, especially the voices of women, of young people and those from the Global South. People must be able to bring not just their views, but most importantly of all, their lived experiences directly to the table and to do so not as outside observers, but as participants and as equals. And when leaders like me listen to you, genuinely listen to people's voices from across the world, then I believe that will and certainly should lead to fairer outcomes and outcomes that are respected more by everybody whose lives are impacted by them. That concept of fairness, of justice, 
was at the heart of Scotland's Climate Assembly, whose work was grounded in statute, in legislation, conducted obviously entirely online because of the challenge of the COVID pandemic, but a climate assembly that involved children and young people, as well as a broad spectrum of people from across our country. And that body of our citizens has challenged really hard Scotland's government to do more, to think more deeply about what climate justice must look like here at home and across the world. Over the next two weeks in this city, which is sometimes affectionately known as the Dear Green Place, leaders must live up to the hopes and expectations of people across the world. Frankly, leaders have arrived at this summit today knowing that they are not doing nearly enough. And they also know what the consequences and impacts of not doing nearly enough will be. So there is no longer any excuse for inaction. This generation of leaders will not be forgiven, should not be forgiven, if there is not action taken over this next two weeks that lives up to the scale of the urgent challenge the world is facing. We must see more action on reducing the emissions gap. We must see more action in reducing the finance gap. It is shameful that a commitment to climate finance made 12 years ago has not been met on schedule, is not due to be met on current projections until 2023. That is not good enough. The aim of keeping 1.5 degrees alive is a laudable aim. It's the bare minimum aim that anybody should expect, but it must be real. It mustn't just be a strapline. And unless countries like mine, countries we're standing here in the city that helped propel the world into the industrial age, countries like mine that have benefited so much from climate change, that have done so much to cause climate change, unless we step up and pay our debt to developing countries now living with the impact, we will fail uh, and that failure uh, will shame all of us. That means it's not an option. We mustn't allow this summit here to fail and therefore we must listen to the voices of the people who are affected most by the decisions that will be taken. If leaders listen, really listen, then we can begin to much more effectively address the deeper issues that we face. Uh, we have a big obligation over the next two weeks. Anybody with any position of responsibility has a big weight on their shoulders. This is a turning point, must be a turning point for the world. But for us to ensure we take it, uh, leaders must do less talking, uh, they mustn't do less delivery, they must do less talking and more listening that leads to greater delivery. So I believe a global climate assembly, like the Scottish climate assembly uh, that we have experienced, can be a real force for powering that change forward. So thank you for uh, everything you are doing to make your voices heard, to make sure there is no hiding place for the leaders gathered here today. I sat just uh, a matter of moments ago in the opening uh, ceremony of this COP and David Attenborough put it very powerfully uh, when, and I'll paraphrase, his words were much more eloquent than mine will be, but imagine being the generation that knows our planet's very existence is on the line and also the generation that knows what needs to be done to save it but stands back and allows our planet, the only part of the galaxy with civilization allows it to die. That's not 
not thinkable. So let's make sure that we start to see action at this COP, powered by the voices of people across the world, to make sure that is not something any of us contemplate. Thank you very much and good luck. To mark the beginning of COP26, Marlene interviewed Commonweal's Robin McAlpine. You can watch the entire video on our YouTube channel as part of our new series, There Is No Planet B. In this clip, they discuss the concept of a coalition of the willing. None of this is global. Yeah, Every yeah. square inch of this is something we do in Scotland, even where we are trading. So even when we would be at buying products made in, I don't know, China or Indonesia, which emitted carbon, we're choosing to buy them. We in Scotland are choosing to buy them. We're consuming them. We're disposing of them. It's our actions that are creating this. Nobody else's. Yeah, yeah. And so when I realized just how local it is, because you've actually, for anyone that doesn't know, we, what we did was we basically went through all seven environmental crises. Climate change is only one of them. We went through all seven environmental crises, tried to work out what was Scotland's contribution to them and where and how, what was it we were doing that was causing them. And again, you suddenly find out they're very locally specific. It happened here. You know, we don't, you don't take 3% off the top of every peat bog everywhere at once. You take a big chunk out of a peat bog and you can drive there and say, they are that. So that, you know, this is the thing. A long time ago, I suddenly realized that negotiated global coalitions are not going to fix this. I think we've got, at the risk of channeling George W, um, I think we need to accept that it's coalitions of the willing. I mean, I think what's going to happen is you're going to find that, I don't know, uh, maybe a Scotland, an independent Scotland in the Nordic countries and a Netherlands and uh, maybe a Belgium and maybe a Portugal. Maybe, well, we all do the right thing. And then we basically just boycott countries that don't. Then we start to say, right, okay, well, there's now 30 of us in a block. We will not trade with countries that don't clean up their act. You know, we we've we will build up over the next 10 years greater capacity between us. We will trade among each other because we are we can trade with each other in confidence because we're all doing the right things and cleaning up our act. So if we buy something from you know one of these other countries, we know that it's been made to a standard that is acceptable for the environment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. if you're not making your products to that, well, you can fuck off, frankly. And if that means that you you don't get to you buy um, one particular piece of plastic tat from what you know from one particular online behemoth retailer, um, well, so be it. That's that's the that's what we're going to have to go yeah. for. So this idea. But that's of, interesting, isn't it? Because that's a that's a kind of bringing together that coalition of the willing i really like that phrase i mean it is it is maybe to do with certain countries the ones you've mentioned are all quite small mm -hmm. um you could probably add in new zealand i yeah. mean maybe maybe canada i don't know where canada oh stands. no canada's tar the, Can, canada's a baddies as well yeah, the tar they're, sands, they're, still, they're, they're, they're not as bad as they were yeah. But they were the other. They were the other country, along with um, Australia, which undermined two of the recent agreements because tar sands are particularly polluting. Yeah, yeah, they but are. They're dreadful. They're, they're worse than fracking. Um, but Canada was yeah. really seriously. The mining industry in Canada was pushing hard for the extraction, and they undermined. But no, what I'm saying is that. But you see, the point is, once you've got five, 
you'll get six, then you'll get seven, then you'll get twelve, then you'll get twenty, then yeah. you'll get fifty. That's yeah. that's how that's how we need to do this because if we are moving at the pace of the slowest, which is what we're currently doing, we're moving at the pace that Australia will let us. We're moving at the pace that America or China will let us. If we keep moving at that pace, we're we're not going to do it. We're not going to mm. manage it. And if you, what's really frustrating to me is Scotland could fix this really quickly. And finally, on her way home from the conference, Leslie Riddick had a very interesting conversation with a train guard on ScotRail. He predicted that following COP26, the Westminster government would be cancelling HS2. This next clip is from the fantastic Leslie Riddick podcast, where she and Pat Joyce are discussing in the wake of the cancellation of High Speed 2, which is either a Tory vanity project or an essential for the Northern Powerhouse, depending on who's talking. Meanwhile, the Scottish government have quietly got on with electrifying our rail. And here's Leslie to explain what difference that makes. What I think has really emerged from, from COP26 and, and, you know, everything is that the British government doesn't plan. Mm -hmm. It doesn't do strategy. It doesn't do long term. I mean, just look at that HS2. None of that makes sense. You know, none of those connections are there. Connections, because then you have to speak to other people properly. Then you have to kind of really let them into the tent and that seeds power. And just as, you know, masks mitigate and real Tories don't do mitigation, yeah. they don't do connection either. They don't do sharing kind of any any sort of big decision making. And you see the kind of complete cock ups that emerge when you see large infrastructure projects that just don't mesh with the existing realities of, of what's controlled by other people. Now, that does contrast, just looping back to the to the Scottish rail thing, because mm -hmm. the other thing that, that my friend on the, the railway said to me was, there's an important Scottish side to this debate that just isn't said, because there was no big fanfare about it. But actually, and this is not just kind of me saying it, but there's a, <laughs> this just shows you what a blooming train spotter I am, Rail Engineering Magazine... <laughs> <laughs> who were who the ones that really and they I spoke to their editor and he was very very cautious about saying anything to me because obviously the bulk of their readers are you know basically British government so they have to kind of keep you know they have to kind of sit on the fence but they did actually make this really clear when they looked at the two different uh, kind of plans that had just been published last July by the British government well Network Rail and Scottish government and they said, yeah, the key difference is that the British one was only a recommendation. And that was from the rail industry to the UK government. The UK government didn't reply. This is the one we're waiting for. So that's that's where we are with them. The latter was an instruction from the Scottish government to industry to get moving. And the result was tracks laid. So what's happened is since 2010, there have been 500 kilometres of new electrified lines basically across Scotland's Scotland central belt. And that's despite the constraints of devolution and borrowing and despite the limitations of working within a privatised rail industry. So, for example, the Borders Railway, and this is really, this is such a shocking um, thing when you think about the whole of the UK, the Borders Railway became the UK's longest new domestic line in a century when it opened in 2015. It's only 30 miles long. Yeah. You know, that's that's how not little has been done south of the border and how all this stuff, you know, all the anger that you'll hear from the northern folk for the rest of this uh, week and hopefully longer 
all the blooming nonsense that will come out of uh, Westminster about better plans they've got are just plans. Whereas what Holyrood has been able to do is just get on with it. So, you know, there has been, they've electrified pretty much the central, but Airdrie to Bathgate, but Paisley Canal, Cumbernauld, and, they've, and the, the Edinburgh to Glasgow mainline. And now they're moving up to Stirlington, Blaine, um, Alloa and, and Shots. Which is great. So we'll have, you know, the bulk of the population will be served by electrified lines, which is not just better for the environment, but the units are cost less to buy and operate. They run faster. They attract more passengers. They let you run longer freight trains at higher speeds so you can carry more trains on existing infrastructure. So we know that, you know, there is still, God damn it, so much that's wrong with trains, our trains. I mean, really, mm -hmm. why can't we have a, the Saltar card that Nicola promised, oh, I don't know, eight years ago, that was like the Oyster card? I mean, because COP26 proved it's technically possible. We've got 16 different sets of concessionary arrangements around Scotland, um, and it would be just great to manage to pull them together. I mean, that should be done. When the ScotRail franchise comes in-house, of course, the problem is then working with private bus operators. But it was done. It was done. I had that yeah. card. It was fantastic. Uh, and, and of course, the northern lines are blooming disgrace. You know, everything stops at Perth um, because Kelly Cranky narrows the line so much that there's only one single track past that. But for goodness sake, you know, that doesn't stop the investment to double track it the rest of the way. And that means trains can pass each other when they're late, which currently <laughs> is the bane of people's lives and the source of massive um, taxi bills for ScotRail, as people I know because I've been on them, get get taken by taxi to try and catch um, the, the, the trains coming out of Inverness because you miss connections all the time. Uh, so... I'm not saying that there aren't lots of problems with Scott Rail, but I know from speaking to my friend on, on the railways that he felt just the beginnings of a glimmer of hope that the Scottish railways would be that again, publicly owned public transport with the ability to plan and work strategically. And in the end, that is what government and governance is all about. Yeah. And in the end, that is what all Conservatives, as they currently present themselves, seem incapable of doing, whether it's Boris or any of his other acolytes. And that's it from the Indie Jigsaw for this month. We'll be back again next month with another roundup of all the interesting clips that we've come across over the month. Don't forget to subscribe to the Scottish Independence Podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Podbean and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye now. I'm a